Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Reif. Today on the show, we're launching a new four-part series on the films of Christopher Nolan, whose latest movie, Tenet, may or may not hit theaters at the end of the month. We're kicking things off with a discussion of Nolan's first two features, Following and Memento. Welcome to Film Club. Okay, Katie, so it's early August, and Mm -hmm. uh, if things were normal... If the, if the world were normal right now, uh, by now we would have talked about Tenet, the new film by Christopher Nolan. Yes, um, it would be playing all over the world right now. Exactly. And uh, the film was scheduled to open in mid-July. And uh, even after uh, a lot of movie theaters shut down, uh, even after the, the sort of uh, the new, we'll say the new normal began in uh, in early March, Warner Brothers was still insisting that Tenet would open in mid-July. For a long time, it was the film that was supposed to sort of reopen movie theater culture. It was it was going to be the, the the sort of uh, the sort of big coming back out party, so to speak. Yeah, it'll be interesting in the future to kind of look back on Tenet and its uh, the moving of the release date as sort of it's sort of a barometer for people uh, people's expectations, you know, because at first people were like, oh, by July it'll be fine, and then it, you know, push back, push back push back it's sort of like you see people's hopes sort of um breaking down along with with the release date of this film (laughs) yeah no i mean it's kind of almost like a metaphor for the way that a lot of people the the sense of the 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 degree of denial that people have had about this pandemic and about yeah when, when their life was going to go back to normal you know, yeah, um, because for a and long it's... time, the movie industry was sort of looking at that mid-July date like, OK, well, things are going to be weird for a, for a few months. But then once we hit that once once Tenet opens in mid-July, because all these other movies were, were just moving completely off the mm-hmm. calendar for a while. If you remember earlier this summer, it was like there were movies were, were basically scheduled for, for early in the summer. They were sort of tentatively holding that that position. And then slowly but surely, all of them were moving some of them as far as a, a year later. But Tenet was the film that was still there, that was still going to open in mid-July. Yeah. And, um, well, it's early August now, and uh, Tenet has not opened. And you know what? You said in denial, but, like, I don't, I honestly don't even think that's in a negative way. I don't think that it's bad to be like, boy, I really hope this passes soon. You know what I mean? I feel that it's less of a come hell or high water, we're going to endanger all your lives to see Tenet so much as a, hey, um... So, like, clinging to last shreds of hope sort of thing. Like, you know, it's not necessarily a cynical <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> well, honestly, I think that if, if 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 enough movie theaters were open, I think Warner Brothers probably would open Tenet. Sure. I think that it they've spent an enormous amount of money on this thing. Um, you know, I mean, like some some movies, like we've seen a few movies over this summer have 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 made the have opted to. Uh, to change their their release strategy entirely and open in in on VOD or something, Tenet is not the type of movie that it was ever going to do that or ever will do that. No, uh, I, it is a theatrical event. No, you know, yeah, I really can't imagine it debuting on any streaming platform. That would be really really surprising if it did happen. I guess what I mean by not blaming people is I don't blame people for wanting to cling to hope. I guess that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean there so Tenet does have a a some new tentative release dates. Uh 
Warner Brothers is now planning on potentially opening it in international markets by the end of this month, mm-hmm. and it could potentially open in some American theaters at the beginning of, of September. Whether either of those things happen still remains to be seen. I think it probably will hit the international market mm-hmm. as planned, because other places in the world kind of have their shit together in a way that we don't. Right, exactly. Um, so, I mean, there, there are there are countries overseas that, in fact, movie theaters are open and people are going to the movies again. Tenet will probably be seen by the end of this month. Mm-hmm. Whether or not we see it here in America in early September as planned, uh, I have my doubts. Um, but this, the movie is coming. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, and I guess there aren't enough drive-ins to really make that the big theatrical event that Warner Brothers wants it to be. No, I, I don't think I don't think they'll do that. Honestly, um, I think we've seen a lot of smaller movies have gone that route this summer that have decided, well, we can we can make some money on the drive-in screens. I think that if Tenet were on drive-in screens, it would it would do about as well as something could do in in a drive right exactly at a drive-in theater. You know, I think it would be a huge hit relative to the number <laughs> relative to the capacity of drive-in theaters mm-hmm. and relative to the number of them in this country but uh that's not going to be enough for warner brothers and enough for christopher nolan i don't think you know right exactly um, because drive-ins have like pretty limited capacity it's sort of built into the business model you know you only there's only right, so many exactly. lots uh so tenet remains i think the the kind of the big movie event of the year mm-hmm. um and i don't think it moving off the i don't think it's it scuttling its uh its previous release dates has changed that and i think a big part of that has to do with the fact that that nolan uh has become kind of uh i think you you could argue maybe the premier voice in modern blockbuster filmmaking yeah um, um i i think that a christopher nolan movie you know like there are some movies that are spring movies or summer movies and you can't really see them opening in the fall in you know quote-unquote awards season but i think a christopher nolan movie could open in you know uh november and it and it would fit just as well there well one has i mm-hmm. mean uh, interstellar opened in in early november so and go. uh and did gangbuster business then mm-hmm. most of his, his movies these days do open in the summer but uh nolan has sort of reached the point as a filmmaker uh that a lot that that very few filmmakers do anymore which is that he is kind of a household name mm-hmm. for people mm-hmm. and movies can sell themselves he, he can sell each a, each new film as the new film from Christopher Nolan and that means something to not just to cinephiles but to to the hoi polloi you know yeah it's um, definitely like I would say if there's a list of like five film directors that the average person has heard of like I would put Christopher Nolan on that list for sure and uh, it's interesting for somebody who started his career making very small films but he has gotten to the point where where he now makes movies um, on enormous budgets mm-hmm. uh he, he pretty much at this point only makes movies with huge budgets and almost all of them are huge box office hits yeah um, and he can make and- uh, uh the kind of demands that big household name directors can make about like insisting that things be shown on celluloid and that sort of thing that's true yeah. he, ha- he has that clout because the thing about it is that no matter how much uh the he spends on these movies, they tend to make the, their money back. Mm-hmm. And, and I find that impressive in their own way because because the other thing about Nolan's films is that for a filmmaker who is operating on such a high level of, uh, such a high budgetary level, mm-hmm. uh, he also makes movies that are conceptually and thematically ambitious. Yeah. You know, a Christopher a Christopher Nolan blockbuster, um, uh, though though he is part of the the kind of comic book industrial complex that exists in in modern sure. blockbuster filmmaking, he's kind of um, lumped in there. Uh, but I would say that it's different because, like you said, it's original IP. It's the fabled original blockbuster that everyone always says they want to have. Well, my point is though, he 
though he contributed to where we are right now mm. in terms of uh, comic book cinema kind of uh, kind of ruling the roost, so to speak. He does not fit into the paradigm of say. Uh, of of say the, the the sort of Marvel Empire, mm, like, where the, these movie these movies that are created that uh, that basically follow a certain strict formula. Um, Nolan's films, you could never accuse Christopher Nolan of making movies that uh, are anonymous. Right. You could never uh, you could never accuse him of making movies that um, that follow a formula other than the the, the sort of uh, crazed bl- blueprint that exists in his own head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um... he does not make cookie cutter blockbusters. Right, right. So with Tenet on the horizon, uh, you and I are going to spend the next four weeks uh, talking about the films of Christopher Nolan. Mm-hmm. Now, Nolan has uh, become, over the last decade, has become probably, uh, arguably, the, one of the, the, the most successful filmmakers in the world. Yeah. And uh, he has made a, uh, he's made a successful transition from making smaller films to being sort of a, a Hollywood hit maker. And uh, we're going to get into all of his films over the next four weeks, uh, but we are going to start today talking about his roots and his his first two features, which um, now look like, I would say, look like sort of outliers in a body of work that is, uh, again, increasingly turned towards uh, larger budgets mm-hmm. and, and, and bigger scales, um, but which you can still look at and see, and see what we'll come to think of as the sort of signatures of, uh, of the Christopher Nolan filmography. Yeah, I would I, w- I would add to that that I mean I think it's kind of related to the increase in budget um, simply because it's easier to work on a smaller budget with noir rather than sci-fi. But his earlier films are more noir influenced, whereas lately you know he's taken more of a turn into uh, sci-fi. So for sure, although I think that uh, as somebody who uh, by his own admission um, grew up watching Blade Runner, mm-hmm. for example, there is. Uh, I think his his work sometimes occupies the intersection of those two of those two genres. Oh too. yeah. Um, you know, I look at something like Inception and think that there are elements of there are elements of science fiction and noir in that. Um, and it's it's tough to say so far with Tenet. I think they're they're guarding a lot of the details of the film uh, pretty tightly at this point. But it, it looks like Tenet might uh, have some aspects of both as well. Yeah. Um, so let's start with um, let's start with following. Okay. Uh, Nolan's first feature, which he made in 1998, and uh, you know you can say that everybody, every filmmaker, no matter how big, start has to start somewhere. And mm-hmm. following to me is very much a first feature. Yeah, um, it's the only film of his that he uh, that he shot in London. Um, Nolan is, of course, a uh, he's a British filmmaker. Um, although he has most of what he's made in the years since he's made in Hollywood. Yep. Or made with Hollywood money, anyway. <laughs> but uh, he had no one's money <laughs> with following. Um, he had his money uh, from a uh, corporate video editing job. Is uh, where right. his, where the money for following came from. And uh, from what I've read about it, most of the film's budget, which did come from Christopher Nolan's salary at his job, went towards the uh, the sixteen millimeter film because even then he was a purist about film. <laughs> and it, I mean, and it, and it looks and it looks and plays like a film that was made on a very very small budget. Yes. Um, I mean, the cast is almost entirely non-stars. Um, it, it it's shot with available light, um, and sometimes looks that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and yeah, it, 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 he he apparently used the locations of he like used friends' apartments and stuff. Um, it, it you I think you asked me before we started filming if the, if it was a student film. It was not a student film, but it has a lot of the trappings of mm-hmm. a kind of a graduate thesis project. 
Um, yeah, and um, so, these type of films, I like to think of, one way I like to think about these type of movies is as sort of instruction manuals for people who are inspiring filmmakers, and he does, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff that is very instructive in these type of films, you know, like limiting locations to places, you know, that you could get for free, that yeah. sort of thing. Um, and we were talking about the credits, well, watching the credits for this movie before we started taping, and how the same names keep popping up over and over again. Yeah, I mean, Nolan Nolan wrote it, he directed it, he produced it, he shot it, and I think he helped with the editing as well. I mean, it is um, it is through and through a Christopher Nolan film, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right that, that the movie does kind of look, it does look a lot like like a, a good lesson in what to do as, as a first-time filmmaker. Yeah. Um, because I think he, you know, for somebody who has, who now uses extensive special effects, and somebody who now takes on these, uh, you know, I mean, his films will often leap all over the world. He'll film in multiple locations. The Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan of 1998 did not have those capabilities and understood that and chose to tell a story that he could tell on uh, with the resources that he had at, at his disposal. Mm-hmm. Which is um, like five people, a couple apartment buildings <laughs> and a rooftop. <laughs> yep. And to those ends, I actually think it's... Um, I mean, I think it's in some respects the movie is. Uh, we'll get into more sort of how we feel the film works, mm-hmm. but so I think on its own terms, the movie actually works reasonably well. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it's essentially uh, as we hinted up front, it's sort of a, a noir scenario. It, it's sort of uh, the, the characters all have um, many of the characters have these archetypal names. I mean, our main character is referred to just as the young man and there is a a femme fatale figure that's called the blonde. Uh Uh, Interestingly, I will say that the one character with a name in the film uh, uh, his name is Cobb, and that is a name that Nolan would later reuse in Inception. That's uh, DiCaprio's character's name. Oh, interesting. Um, Yeah. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you took this film and, and you laid it out uh, from point A to point B in a linear fashion, it would be very simple. It's basically the story of a man who has uh, a, a kind of peculiar preoccupation. He likes following strangers around mm-hmm. and sort of just studying their life. Um, he he is an aspiring writer, um, although the film suggests that he has not actually really written anything. And uh, he eventually, through through one of these, uh, through through this peculiar hobby of his, he runs into a man, the aforementioned Cobb. Uh, this kind of uh, slick and well-dressed man who uh, who has his own preoccupation, which is uh, breaking into people's homes. And um, he does not do that. Uh, he doesn't really seem to do it for money. It's mostly he, he too, has this weird hang-up, basically. And it, it, it's almost a... Um... I would argue that it is almost it, like it's kind of sexual. It's it's like a fetish. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's all about, like, violating the people's uh, sense of safety. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the two of them end up in this uh, this sort of makeshift partnership. And uh, I won't say if you haven't seen the film, um, I won't I won't say much more about where the story goes. Um, it uh, except to say that it plays on some classic noir themes. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen if you've seen a noir about about gullible men who fall into schemes that they're who basically who basically get in over their head, uh, you can probably guess where this film ends up going. Kind of the most notable thing about the movie, uh, and the thing that sort of uh, distinguishes it from from your average low budget neo noir, uh, is that Nolan tells it completely out of order. Yeah, um, and 
there's a lot of cross there's crosses and double crosses and just basically everyone has a hidden agenda which is very noir as you mentioned and fracturing the timeline does make it so i admit like it wasn't until the very end of the film that i went oh that's what's going on (laughs) (laughs) which is i mean i think is is particularly if you're I think there's a certain shrewdness to him choosing to do that in this case. I mean, Nolan has, in the years since, has played with chronology again. Mm-hmm. Um, the, his first Batman film, Batman Begins, which we'll talk about next week, that plays with chronology. Obviously, the movie we're going to talk talk about later yeah. on the show today, Memento, is very well known for playing with chronology. Uh, he does it in The Prestige as well. So this is sort of the roots of that of that interest. I will say that those films do it in in a way that, to me, felt feels a little bit more pointed and a little bit more... Um, purposeful yeah Um, and i would add that i don't think that he had really finessed the sort of system with this one quite yet like this one is sort of like um enigmatic to the point of being uh confusing at times whereas like memento has arguably a more complicated story structure but it is never hard to follow right memento is you, you can follow it he, he, like, teaches you how to watch the film very early yeah. on. This feels kind of arbitrarily achronological, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, I really do think that it's 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 a device perhaps successful in getting people interested in what is ultimately a fairly simple and banal mm-hmm. noir story. He sort of dresses that up with, with the chronological gamemanship. Yeah. And, and uh, creates these kind of these little mysteries that, that the movie then solves. Like, oh, why does he look beat up in this one scene? Like, like like how did he get to that place and like you know why at some point why does he look scruffy and kind of mm-hmm. uh, disreputable early in the film and later in the film why does he look slick the the, the chronological structure basically uh, answers those questions for us yeah and um and that kind of plays into you have the identity of Cobb and then you know the unnamed man who at times he's called Bill and at times he's called Danny and there's elements of shifting identity in that and also in sort of how you you know, the way that the plot plays out and the relationship between those two characters, their identities kind of merge and blend. And um, and you were talking about the changing appearance of the main character. Uh, that sort of plays into that. There are elements of like identity thriller in this, which is very noir, but also something that Christopher Nolan would continue to play with. For sure. And I mean, there's a lot of hallmarks of his future work in this film. I, I, I immediately thought that the music it has, a, has a certain propulsive quality that I think we would, that he would continue playing with in, in later films and in sort of all of his blockbuster work. You know, we're seeing slick, suited men carry on heists of sorts. They're, they're a lot, <laughs> they're much smaller stake in this film. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's I mean, creepy, I, 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 I don't think it's a. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, it's creepy. Um, you know who else used to do yeah. this? The Manson family. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are photographs, you know. Uh, there is an incompetently filmed fist fight. <laughs> one, one thing Leonard. that we're going to get into this. At this <laughs> yeah. I think mean, one thing we're going to get into this, though, it, it, over the course of the series is that I do think that Nolan has improved enormously as an action filmmaker i even think that once he made the leap into making the batman films he still was not quite equipped to direct an action scene mm-hmm. i think there's a certain sloppiness to some of uh to some of his action scenes and you can kind of see the like for him like sometimes 
filming bodies in motion uh, was difficult, I think, in, in the early years of his career. And you can see that there's a very incompetent, incompetently directed. It's weird to say incompetent in, in terms of Nolan in any respect, but I do think there's a very sloppy fight scene in this film. Sure. Yeah, it's relative. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah. I mean, in terms of themes that would continue, uh, another one, and one of the things that I like about, you know, the, the way he does the story structure, he mixes it up, but it's all like you were saying, this one and pretty much all of his films like we'll get into memento more but that's not that complicated of a story if you put it in chronological order as well what he does that i like his approach to storytelling is he takes something initially that sort of violates your sense of reality and in this case it's the social contract by following people around is sort of a strange abnormal thing to do and that opens a door to deeper mysteries which i i feel like that is his basic approach to inciting a plot totally yeah, that makes sense. So the film is 70 minutes. It's very short. Uh, I, I do sort of feel like, um, the, in many respects, this movie feels like a dry run to Memento to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's like this is sort of, it's not quite a proof of concept because Memento is is a huge leap. I mean, they're, they're in no way the exact same film and, and Memento takes a bunch of large leaps from there. But uh, I do think that following sort of was uh, was a demonstration of what Nolan could do. Sort of the ideal first feature in the sense that it, it, it it's, it's, it's a bit of a calling card and it says, yes. this is what I can do with no money. Imagine what I could do with more. Yes, 100%. This is a calling card film. Following actually, it, got, it caught Nolan some attention on the festival circuit. I think he won a couple of awards mm-hmm. at regional film festivals. Um, people were definitely looked at that film and said, I mean, it, it's sort of like the quintessential uh, filmmaker to watch movie. Yeah. You know? And this I is mean, what, 98? That was towards the end of uh, that sort of um, film festival cycle where you had all these big filmmakers breaking out at film festivals, you know, sort of the 90s indie renaissance. But uh, it was it was Nolan's next film that really sort of catapulted him uh, in to the limelight and uh, the film on which he, he sort of has built his career and built his reputation. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, was Memento. Yeah. Um, Memento arrived in uh, in 2000. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival, which uh, is a huge leap, uh, given that following had premiered at Slamdance. Yeah. So which is the alternative very, Sundance, very, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like smaller than Sundance. Yeah. Um, so it's a big leap, uh, and, I, and I think I understand why. I mean, even if you were a filmmaker who did not have a ton of clout at that point, if you sent if – I, if I'm a programmer and somebody sends me Memento, I'm programming. You're going to play you it. Know? Yeah, you're going to play the movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Memento, you know, you talk about reach uh, – I remember seeing it on VHS in high school. I remember it being something that people at my high school were talking about. So it made it at least as far as Ohio in terms of cultural reach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I was I was in high school as well. I was I was living in Michigan at the time, and uh, I saw it in theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember being very excited for it because a lot of buzz had built up around it at that point. Um, Listen, we, we talk a lot on this show about um, about old favorites and about the ways that our tastes have evolved over mm-hmm. the years. And Memento was definitely a high school favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. It definitely appeal. You know, there's there's a lot about it that appeals. I think to um, to maybe one might say a high school sensibility. But I think unlike a lot of the films that I loved as a teenager, um, Memento has I think in a lot of respects held up quite well. Memento held up really well. When I rewatched it, I was just really engrossed in it and really impressed by it and like I think I because it was such a long time ago the last time I saw it I think my estimation of it actually went up on rewatching it yeah 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's actually an enormously sophisticated piece mm-hmm. of storytelling. Um, even though it's actually, in a lot of ways, as you said before, it's not a it's not a big story. I mean, it, it's it's as small and contained in some ways as following is. Um, the movie takes place over really just a few days. Yeah, and with, not, a, with a very small cast of characters, not a ton of locations. Set in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. I believe, um, and I guess I mean I, I have to assume that that many of our listeners have seen Memento, um, considering what a touchstone it is in modern independent film. But if you haven't, um, the film stars Guy Pierce. He plays Leonard Shelby. Uh, he is a man who has a very rare, although uh, I'm told real. Uh, oh, it's real. Memory condition. Oh, wow. It, they might exaggerate aspects I of see. it, but yes, it is apparently based on a real memory condition. Um, and uh, the thing is that he cannot make new memories. So uh, up to the point of um, the movie sort of swirls around this backstory where uh, his wife has been killed. And by the way, that is a reoccurring theme in Christopher Nolan's yes, work as he well. Loves is dead, wife. dead wives and girlfriends. He, loves <laughs> yeah, he does. What he else motivates so men, though? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they never do anything unless you kill their wife, though. <laughs> there's, a, there's a dead girlfriend in following as well. So it goes all the way back to the start. <laughs> I, I, um, I mean, you know, like femme fatales and dead blondes is also very noir, so we'll let him off the hook totally. a little bit there. <laughs> but, uh, but I totally. do like to kind of tease about that, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Leonard, uh, before before the events of the film, uh, Leonard was an insurance investigator, and uh, his wife was killed in a home invasion, and he uh, hit his head, and he now suffers from uh, this this memory problem. He can remember everything up until the attack. After the attack, he can only remember things for about five minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. So basically, if uh, he's in a situation that lasts longer than a few minutes, he will remember, he will forget how that situation started. So anyone he meets after the accident, he he does not remember he basically functions through a series of uh, – he carries around photographs that he writes messages on the backs of. He has tattoos on his body. Uh, he basically has this system that helps him operate in the world mm-hmm. even though he has a condition that makes him – I mean that w- would make the average person completely useless in, in normal life. Okay. Here's something I was thinking about when I was watching this that obviously didn't come up the first time. Would a smartphone have completely changed this man's life? Would his life be completely different if he had a smartphone and he could like keep huh. – he could take more pictures. He could take videos. He could leave more detailed notes to himself and it would all be right there. Like would, would it make his life a lot easier if he had had you know smartphone technology he could look things up faster you know it would make it way easier yeah (laughs) (laughs) it would make it way easier yeah I mean if you had all the everything that is contained in a modern phone yeah I mean I think I think his life would be a lot easier I think I think a lot of the problems he faces would still be problems sure but you're right that organizationally I I think it's one of the better jokes in the movie that even though he has this system he's not always great at actually following it he has a lot of he like has a habit of leaving things places and um there, there's a lot of um there's a lot of dark comedy in this scenario as well yeah that, that yeah Christopher with. Nolan it's a very funny film yeah he's not really known for his comedy but there's quite a few funny uh lines in this film like starting at the very beginning like when he goes there's a bible in the room I read it <laughs> religiously okay and then he moves on (laughs) with the monologue i thought that was very funny and there's also a part where you know he has a memory blip and he wakes up in a bathroom holding a bottle of whiskey and he goes i don't feel drunk and that's that's i thought that was very (laughs) funny too (laughs) well because there's there's honestly there is a there's a natural slapstick there's natural slapstick potential Mm -hmm. 
in Leonard's condition. And um, as serious, I mean, Nolan sometimes gets nicked um, by his detractors for being uh, ultra, uh, sort of uh, ultra self-serious. Yeah, yeah, his films yeah. are, are, are oh, very, very grim and serious. Mm-hmm. But the truth is that Memento has a sense of humor. And uh, I think that it often understands the the uh, the potential for comedy in, in some of Leonard's daily interactions. And, yeah, uh, it's an absurd plight. Yeah. You know, it's an absurd. It is. It is very much a play. And you know, uh, another thing I wanted, I really liked about this movie that I wanted to mention was I really like the casting. There's a lot of great character actors in the movie. Like one of the more comedic characters is the motel owner, played by Mark Boone Jr. Look him up when you see his face. You'll be like, oh, that guy, a character actor who I like very much. And uh, every time he sees Leonard, he's like, yeah, I know, you have a condition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he kind of messes with him a little uh-huh. bit. I mean, he he at one point confesses that he's rented him two rooms at the motel <laughs> yeah. because he won't remember anyway, right. you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a very small cast, but uh, but, a, but a significant one, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the lead role is obviously played by Guy Pierce um, in probably what's become, I think, probably his signature performance. I, th- I think when people, probably. you know, when he dies, it, I think it'll be in his, in the first line of his eulogy will probably be, or, or his obituary will probably be Memento. Mm-hmm. Before this, he had, he had had a significant role in L.A. Confidential, but I think Memento is the performance for which he will be remembered. Yeah, um, and uh, Carrie Ann Moss, think, who was very hot at the time because of the Matrix trilogy. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joe P- Pantoliano, mm-hmm. uh, Joey Pants, <laughs> in other words. Uh, <laughs> yep. uh, also, uh, Carrie Ann Moss's Matrix co-star. Yep. Uh, he sort of plays this. He plays this dirty cop who, throughout the movie, is. Uh, I guess you could kind of describe him as a frenemy. Um, It's unclear what their relationship exactly is and what his intentions are throughout, uh, even though the movie does open with, uh, with Leonard killing him. Basically, that happens in the first five minutes yeah, of the film. Yeah, he sort of strikes me as a Breaking um, Bad character before Breaking Bad was a show. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't thought about that. That's 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 a good point. He, he does kind of have that quality. Yeah, and um, um, let's not forget Stephen Tobolowsky, another beloved character actor, playing uh, sort of... Playing Sammy Jenkins in the, which is sort of the character that Leonard hangs on to. It's a story from the before times, from before the accident of this man who had the same condition as him. And Leonard denied him an insurance claim. And, you know, I, I felt that one of the main driving motivations for Leonard's character is his need to prove that he can do what Sammy Jenkins couldn't. Because if mm-hmm. he because if he's in the same boat as Sammy Jenkins, then that sort of morally condemns him for his decision. And uh, totally, yeah. And an insurance adjuster, an insurance salesman, is also a noir stock character, like in Double Indemnity, famously totally. revolves yep. around an insurance salesman. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Jenkins because I think that's really important to what the film's doing as well structurally. It is. Um, it's. It's in some ways. It. It. It's. It's, it's a movie that appears more complicated than it really is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm impressed by the the I, I I was a I watched rewatched some of it last last night I had, I actually rewatched it on on chance a couple months ago as well um, I I sort of I intended to just kind of watch a little bit of it last night and ended up getting sucked into it and watching most of oh, it Oh yeah I was just um, like I didn't even get up to go to the bathroom I was just like sucked into the movie I was yeah really liked it 
Anyway, sorry. Well, and Nolan Nolan kind of tells you how to watch the film from the very start mm-hmm. in a way. Um, I mean, the, the the movie opens with we're seeing somebody um, we're seeing somebody he has he's a he has a Polaroid in his hand and he's doing the thing that people do shaking the Polaroid, which I'm told does not actually help it uh, develop <laughs> any faster. <laughs> I've been told that in recent years. Uh, well, explain what a Polaroid is. Entire life. Explain what a Polaroid <laughs> yes. is for our younger listeners. Uh, it is a uh, it is a picture that you take with a conventional camera, a non-digital camera, and it develops, it basically develops uh, instantly. I mean, it mm-hmm. develops over a period of maybe maybe 10 minutes or so. So it just sort of shoots the, the picture out and develops in front of your eyes. Yeah, because you used to shoot rolls of film and then you had to send them off to a photo lab and wait to see the photo. So if you wanted to see the photo right away, <laughs> or if you were taking a photo that you didn't want the people at the photo lab to see, uh, that's what a Polaroid was for. <laughs> <laughs> Do you really think there are people listening to this who don't know what a Polaroid is? I think, Probably, right? I think I there know. are probably, I'm not sure if they're listening to our podcast. That might be presumptuous on my part. But I yeah. think there are people who don't know what a Polaroid is at this point in history. That's yeah. probably true. <laughs> <laughs> well, this film depends on them a lot. Yeah. But, uh, the, the, the movie opens with him holding the, uh, a Polaroid, a picture of himself. And as he's shaking it, it's actually, uh, it's getting less clear mm-hmm. and uh, sort of uh, it's, it's, uh, we realize very quickly that it's moving in reverse. The first scene we see entirely in basically rolls backwards. And then the film from there establishes its structure, which is that the scenes that are in black and white are moving forward. And uh, a lot of them are the scenes in which he is he's in a hotel room and he's telling us about Sammy Jenkins. Mm-hmm. So there's this story within a story that he's telling us about that, that ultimately ends up tying into the larger story. Mm-hmm. Whereas the scenes in color... We, we quickly realize are moving backwards so that every scene is technically takes place after the events, sorry, uh, before the events of the, of the scene we've seen before. So it sounds complicated, but uh, the movie sort of clues us into how to watch it very quickly. Yeah. I think it's actually pretty easy to follow once you figure out, and, and again, you figure out pretty quickly, it's like, but once you figure out how it's, how it's structured. Yeah, the way that I would best describe it is it's like if you read a book in reverse, but you didn't read, you know, page 300, 299, 298. It's like if you started on chapter 30 and then you read chapter 29, 28, 27, 26. Yes, it's that's like a that. good way to put it. And, uh, you know, I mean, over the years, I feel like those who do not like Memento have kind of derided it as uh, kind of an empty gimmick movie. And uh, I've always pushed back on that because, I, I mean, it is a gimmick. Sure. In a sense. Telling your movie backwards is a gimmick. But it's the, it um, ties to the theme and the way that it does. Yeah. It ties to the theme of the film, it, it, so it's not pointless. It has a it has a dramatic structural function, right? I mean, and folding backwards puts us in roughly the same position, the same predicament as Leonard. We have no idea what's come before, so in any in any given scene, what we are experiencing it in a way in the same way that Leonard does, with no prior knowledge of of how we got there, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it creates this present this this constant present tense with no tie to. To the past. Now, I mean, obviously, we have something that Leonard does not have, which is we know where it goes. Yeah. Like, we have a knowledge of the future that he does not have. But like him, we do not know what set up any individual scene. And Nolan plays with that device in, like, in some really clever and diabolical ways. Yeah, I Um, I think that... um... The thing is, like, it's true that we don't know what came before, but when you see what came before, it illuminates what you already saw. I think it's very clever in that way. That when, yes. that even though the story is going in reverse, 
Um, there is forward character development in that you learn more about the characters as the story goes backwards, if that makes sense. Yes, totally. Yeah. And um, it's funny because I was watching Following. I was thinking that this movie is paying off things that I really don't need payoffs for. <laughs> like, I don't really care why he got a haircut. You know? <laughs> like, like, Following was telling me things. It was, it was like revealing things that don't matter to me. Mm-hmm. But Memento, in a lot of respects, uses it to reveal things that are very important and 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 speak a lot to the motives of the characters. That I think the, the most brilliant demonstration of it is that there is a scene uh, in the film uh, involving the Carrie Ann Moss character. Now, she's this bartender who Leonard gets involved with, um, who uh, has a connection to somebody who he may have, that, that, that he has another connection to as well. Uh, I mean, the movie sort of creates this very small little, uh, this, this small world w- within the larger scope of Los Angeles of um, sort of small stakes crime, essentially. Yeah. And Moss is this bartender who uh, he gets involved with. And there is a scene where we see him agree to do something for her. Uh, she comes in and she's she's uh, she's been hurt by someone, and he agrees uh, out of some misplaced sense of nobility to get involved in in her problems and in her life. The very next scene, which obviously is the one before, we see how she has orchestrated this moment, mm-hmm. and uh, it is such a brilliant, sadistic, it's uh, so manipulative dark. turn of events. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so, so dark, dark. And, yeah. because it opens a lot of doors to a lot of very cynical avenues of ways that people could take advantage of this man uh, not only of his memory condition but also his one driving thing is to get revenge for his wife and then you realize how easy it would be to convince a guy who can't remember what happened 15 minutes ago that a guy you want killed is the man that killed his wife it'd be quite easy to convince him of that yeah i mean it's it's almost like the ultimate patsy story yeah I mean, a lot of a lot of you mentioned double indemnity mm-hmm. uh earlier which is one of those as well, something like Body Heat fits that that mold as well. I mean, a lot of noir stories are about uh, sort of men who are not um, who are not smart enough to realize that they're being taken for that they're, they're basically being they're basically being set up. Mm-hmm. And uh, Memento is like that, except that it's not so much that he's that he's dim as that he has this <laughs> he has this psychological problem that makes damage. him a perfect yeah. target. He is brain damage yeah. exactly. And it's also sort of left vague how long ago this. Uh, brain damage happened how long ago his injury happened mm-hmm. which to me opens the door to a very like I was saying a dark and cynical thing a very dark thing which is how, how many towns has he been in how many people yeah. like this could have been going on for years this could be like the 10th time that some sort of situation like this has happened in his life and he would have no idea I think that's that's actually strongly implied yeah. that it's something that's been going on for a very long time, yeah. um, the, the, especially in the implications of the ending, mm-hmm. which we won't get into in, in, in detail here. But, uh, I mean, the, the movie is, uh, at heart, I think, a film about, um, about the way that our own motives are essentially a mystery to mm-hmm. us. The degree to which self-deception rules a lot of our lives, yeah. and uh, we have we have these ideas about what's motivating us, but they don't necessarily always sync with what with the reality of uh, of our actual psychological motives. Yeah, because you know you you said it was the ultimate Patsy story, and I agree, but um, I mean to say much more would give a lot away, but it's more complicated than that. And I think so much. Of, I mean, this movie works. I think as well as it does. A lot of it has to do with 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 Guy Pierce's performance. Mm-hmm. He just kind of projects this guilelessness that that goes along with his performance. There's an innocence to him that the the movie obviously complicates 
at a certain yeah. point. But we want to, I mean, we we immediately want to root for this guy because of the situation that he's in. I mean, uh, beyond just the, the basic, the, the basic revenge plot machinations, right. you know, I mean, uh, I mean, his condition makes him instantly sympathetic in a way. And we see the way that people are exploiting him. Um, and I think that he projects a certain, a certain innocence that can only come from not, from not knowing uh, from, from not understanding your own actions and not knowing what's come before yeah. uh, that the movie then complicates in, in a uh, in a really dramatically satisfying way. Yeah, and I then when say. you combine it with, you know, a very dark and gritty character of a rogue, you know, out for homicidal revenge, it just makes for a really interesting uh, character, you know, having those two elements be, I, I think, equally foregrounded in the character. I actually find the movie enormously affecting. I know mm-hmm. that the other the, the other sort of knock against it is that it's a, it's just kind of a cold exercise, you know? There is a certain the sort intellect. Of Christopher Nolan does tend to sort of intellectualize his themes, I think. He does, although I think he's underrated as a filmmaker who, who brings an emotional heartbeat to the material. Okay. I actually do think that there's, uh, a lot of his movies have a, a, a kind of have a, a strong emotional core that sometimes gets ignored because because they're, they're these 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 sort of Swiss watch yeah. acts of uh, maybe too clever by half construction. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The um, cleverness of it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it ends up sort of overshadowing other qualities, but I do think that I fi- I find Leonard's particular existential predicament to be to be kind of heartbreaking. And I, and I think the notion of somebody trapped in a bubble of their own grief and rage, I mean, even the, the mere idea that he, it's impossible for him to get over this thing because he cannot remember. Mm-hmm. He basically, every time he wakes up, yeah. he is in the in the immediate aftermath. I mean, they, they say that part of getting, like par, part of grief is just time. Right. You know, you have to spend time with those feelings. Yeah, that's... And for Leonard, what's particular about Leonard's condition is that he exists in the immediate aftermath of the attack and his wife's death in perpetuity yeah that's true i didn't think about that you know it is easy to kind of get caught up in the cleverness of the whole thing so i guess i didn't think about it in that way he'll never heal from it because he doesn't have the benefit of t- of time passing oh that's really sad yep. <laughs> it's, it's it's heartbreaking <laughs> yeah. you know and i think pierce does a really good job of 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 conveying that i mean there's a sadness to the performance uh, that that really sticks with me um, I, I think it, I think it might be Nolan's best movie, to be honest. Yeah. Um, well, he's he's moved in other directions since. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, obviously, I mean, and we're going to talk about those on the show. I think he's made uh, he's made much bigger films in the years since Memento, but I don't know if he's made one that is as um, is as dramatically devastating as Memento ends up being. All right, everybody, that's all we've got for you this week. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. Please join us again next week where our Christopher Nolan series continues with a discussion of his signature trilogy, The Batman Films. See you next time. 